0: Bibles to Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1. We introduced last week, re-engaging in COVID times. We're going to continue that this week with another concept that's important for us to look at. My wife, Mel, is from a Norwegian heritage, and as a result, we get some real benefits at Christmas time with things that she bakes. We have these special things, rosettas we have, we have krumkaka, we have funny men, sandbuckles, but, but there's one thing she makes every year that's very special. It's lefse. Now, lefse is a potato and milk batter that's sort of like a flour tortilla, and, uh, but there's a special grill for it. And so we have this nice grill that she has about that big around, just flat as can be. It only comes out around this Christmas. In fact, it only comes out this day that she's making lefse. And along with that grill, there's also this long wooden tool that is used that you slide underneath it as it's baking or grilling, and then you just fold it over, tip it over so you make the other side. And it comes out just brown on. When you get done, you eat it different ways. Some people would just butter on it. Some are just plain butter and sugar. It's just really a great uh, item to eat at Christmas time. And that grill, when you read the instructions on it, you can use it for anything. You can bake eggs on it. You can do French toast on it. You make pancakes on it. But we don't. That thing comes out one time a year. That one day we bake lefse. It goes back in the box. It goes up on the shelf. And it doesn't come out again. Because it is set apart for one thing only. Making lefse. Now you may have something like that in your home too. You may have something in your home that for birthdays you have that one birthday plate. And everybody in the family knows as soon as they see that plate out, they know this is it. It's birthday time. Or it could be special dishes that you have. But somehow you've got something in your home that you've sort of set apart that everybody knows this is it. It's for a very special event, a special occasion, something it's dedicated to. Well, the scriptures talk about that as well. It uses the word of consecrated consecrated. It's the idea that you can take something and set it apart just for God to make it holy. Set it apart. It's used only for one thing. To somehow bring honor and glory to God. And it's called consecrated. And the Old Testament is used in a variety of ways. You could consecrate things. So when you think of the tabernacle or the temple when the Jewish people worshipped. All those items that were in there were consecrated, set apart only for God but you could also do people. In fact, the priests were consecrated. They were anointed with oil and set apart just to bring worship and honor and glory to God. But this is interesting as well. After God finds himself giving the Ten Commandments that we talk about, Moses is given the law. And in the law is Leviticus, and Leviticus 11... In chapter 11, verses 44 and 45, it says this. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy. For I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. For I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. Here's what God's saying. When he gave him his people... Brought them out of Egypt. He set them apart. And he said every one of those Jewish people. Were to consecrate themselves. Set themselves apart. From anyone else. It tells us there's something important. For us to understand. Then when we come to the New Testament. He talks about the same thing. That we. As followers of Jesus Christ. Are to consecrate ourselves. Set ourselves apart. From other people. Somehow when they look at us, they see something different. Because we're consecrated to Christ. When we come to the book of Daniel, we've seen how it's unfolded. Where these Jewish people found themselves living in Jerusalem. In this life and culture that they have. But they were conquered by the Babylonians. And Nebuchadnezzar takes them and brings them all the way over to Babylon. And when he gets them there, introduces them to all the culture they have in Babylon. He's training Daniel and his three friends with all the culture they can have. And while they're over here we're trying to figure out what to do, Jeremiah writes them a letter. Jeremiah's letter comes out of Jeremiah 29. He tells them, here's what I want you to do. Live normal lives. But I want to make sure you come together periodically and pray. Pray for the welfare of the city. Pray for one another. And he brings them together for community, this face-to-face community for prayer, and for worship. But there's a second thing we find in the book. If they're going to deal with this life over here in Babylon, they would not only need community, but it's also we find these young men and we find out that they need to be consecrated in how they live. For us to think for ourselves, during this COVID time, during the lives we live now, that somehow when people see us, do they see us different? Do they see us consecrated? Do they see us set apart for Christ? And as we come to our passage today, we're going to look at various chapters out of Daniel. And I want you to see there's five things that they seem to identify out of their life. Five things that we should wrestle with on a regular basis. In my life, how do I respond to these five things? Because they make up a consecrated life. And what we find is the way that they live through this difficult time is by being consecrated to God. There's the importance of community, that we gather together. But there's also the importance of how I personally live in difficult times. So what's a consecrated life look like? Well, the first word is defilement. Here's what we read, Daniel chapter 1, and starting at verse 8. Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself. You may recall what's happened up to here is that Daniel's come along, they're told they're going to eat the king's food and drink the king's wine, which is not kosher and violates the law of the Old Testament. So Daniel and his friends respond this way. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. He saw permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. And the command of the officials said to Daniel, I'm afraid, my lord, the king, who has appointed your food and your drink for why you should um, see your faces looking more haggard than the youth who are your own age, then you would make me forget or forfeit my head to the king. But Daniel said to the overseer, May the commander of the officials had appointed, said to the overseer whom the the commander of the officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Nazariah, please test your servants for 10 days and let us be given vegetables. So here they are trying to decide what to do and they decide not to defile themselves. That is, they're not going to eat this food. They're not going to drink this wine. They put a test. Let's test for 10 days. And how do we do compared to the others? They find out after 10 days, they've not lost weight. They're doing just fine, and the overseer lets them stay on that diet and continue living that way. Here's the outcome that we find. Drop down to the uh, end of the chapter here in verse 17. And as far as for these youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence, every branch of literature and wisdom, and Daniel even studied all kinds of visions and dreams. Verse 19, and the king talked with them, and out of them all, None was found like Daniel and Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. So what we find is they've taken this decision to not have defilement or defile their lives. The result of that is that all of a sudden God honors that and they get to serve in the king's court. But the idea of defilement brings on the idea that it's something you can see. It actually identifies a stain. Or if you pollute something. So to understand, when you start thinking of defilement in your life, it's where other people can see that taking place. For these young men, they could see what they were eating. Everybody could watch what they ate every day. They could see if they did defile themselves, if they ate that non-kosher food. It was seen that that happened. The whole idea that we can stain ourselves. Now, my favorite sweatshirt I have in my closet is one from my alma mater of the University of North Dakota. And about the first time I wore it, I drop something on, I have this grease spot just about right here. I never wear that sweatshirt anymore. It's still in my closet because I like it so much. But I have a grease spot here. Why? And you, if I go out with you and you see that, you see this stain on my sweatshirt. And you're thinking to yourself, Mike, do you know there's a stain? You get to see it. And defilement means there's something that stains our life that other people see. Now, if you want to live a consecrated life, you have to make sure there's not defilement in your life. What are the things that people can see in us that would be defiling us? About, but the words you use. About in the workplace, how you talk. Do your coworkers listen to you, and actually, you're defiling yourself and your consecration by the words you use. By the jokes you tell. Do you find yourself when you swear. When you get angry. And you can apologize for it. But somehow people hear you taking the Lord's name. Somehow they hear other words out of you. And somehow just by your presence. And your words. You are staining yourself. In your consecration. Because you're defiling yourself. How about when you're around other people. And you start talking about other people. Is there gossip in your life? That some people listen to you talk? They're aware that there's stains on your life when they look at you and that they don't see Christ. They see those stains on your sweatshirt and wondering why, if you were a consecrated follower of Christ, why do these words come out of your mouth? Or when they come up behind you, On your computer, your tablet, or your phone, or your laptop. And they see what you're looking at. Is there a stain on your soul that they see? Is it where they watch places that you go? That all of a sudden there's a stain on your soul as they look at you. And all of a sudden in our walk with Christ. There's supposed to be this consecration that we have. That somehow when people look at us, they see Christ. That when Daniel and his friends were looked at, they saw Yahweh and who they followed because of how they lived. Because consecration means we wrestle with defilement. And we do not want to defile ourselves as we follow Christ. Well, there's a second word that becomes important. This we find ourselves in Daniel chapter 2. And that word is decision-making. So Daniel chapter 2, what takes place is that Nebuchadnezzar is going to have a dream. And he has this dream. He wants to find out what it means. And he's asking all his uh, conjurers and all his magicians, what does this dream mean? And uh, they're sending out uh, individuals to do it. So in chapter 2, here's what we read. Now in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. King gave orders to call all the magicians and conjurers, the sorcerers and the Chaldeans, to tell him his dreams. So they came in and stood before him. King said, I had a dream. My spirit's anxious to understand the dream. Tell the dream to your servant. Well, I'm sorry, verse 4. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic. O king, live forever. Tell the dream to your servants, and we will declare the interpretation. King said to the Chaldeans. The command for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you'll be torn limb from limb. Your houses will be turned into rubbish. So the king has a dream. He's not going to tell him the dream to interpret it. He tells them they have to tell him the dream. So what transpires is Daniel and his friends are coming to hear about this, and this occurs when we drop down to verse uh, twenty five not twenty-five. Earlier than that, verse fourteen. uh, The decree went out in verse 13. The decree went out forth to all the wise men should be slain, and they looked for Daniel and his friends to kill them. That Daniel replied with discretion and discernment to Arioch, the captain of the king's bodyguard, who had gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. He answered and said to Arioch, the king's commander, For what reason is the decree from the king so urgent? Arioch informed Daniel about the matter. So Daniel went in and requested of the king, That he would give him time in order that he might declare the interpretation of the king. So Daniel and his friends are going to interpret the dream. How do they go about doing that? Here's what we read in verse 17. Then Daniel went to his house, informed his friends Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah about the matter. In order that they might request compassion from God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his friends might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. So the king has a dream, wants it interpreted. Daniel finds out about it, decides what he's going to do is get help. Two things he does. One is he gets together with his three friends, so now the four of them start having a conversation about what to do next. In that conversation, they also pray together that God would give them compassion and understanding to the dream. And God actually does that for them. But what I want you to see in this process here of decision-making, that during this difficult time, Daniel does not function all alone. He doesn't come to this idea, oh, I need to interpret this dream. What do I do? And function all alone in his life. He actually pursues counsel from other people. As he finds his counsel from other people, then they sit down and talk, and then they pray. And what happens is God actually answers their prayer, and he interprets the dream. Decision-making is an important thing in the life of the believer. But have you ever associated with the idea of your consecration to Christ? Of how you make decisions? It's been interesting this COVID time and listening to people and all the decisions people have made. Some of them I sort of enjoy listening to of how many people have bought pets during COVID time. And they're COVID pets now and they have all their pets that they have. It's like, boy, some decisions they made. But I've also been interested to watch how many people have moved during this time, sold houses and bought new houses, decisions that way. Jobs are being decided. Are you taking a new job or not? And all this is going on, we're making decisions all the time. But decision-making, decision-making, as we watch these young men, was not done all alone. Decisions where you gather some others with you to help you make a decision. And how do they help you make that decision? They pray with you for that. Essentially, when you come to Proverbs, Proverbs talks about how you make decisions. It says this in Proverbs 11, verse 14. Where there is no guidance, a, a, a people fall. But in the abundance of counselors, there is safety. Proverbs 13, 22. Without counsel, plans fail. But with the many advisors, they succeed. So it's starting to think through when we start thinking of being committed to Christ and following Christ. We're all making decisions regularly. Important decisions in our life. But decision making as a follower of Christ gets involved with other people as well. The part of our decision making is that we get the counsel from other believers. That's a spiritual decision we're making. Therefore, there's prayer that is made on those behalf too. And though we may say that often that we pray, it's just pushing back on you. Did you really spend time in prayer? As a couple, did you pray? As a family, did you pray? Did other believers pray with you? Decision-making for followers of Christ are important. But somehow... If we're going to have this consecrated life, it means we bring other people into our lives individually to say, I want to talk to you about what I'm working through and deciding. And as I make this decision, I'm asking for your counsel, I'm asking for your advice, and I want you to pray with me as we do this. See, consecrated lives are wrestling with questions all the time. But an important one is decision making of how we make it, because we see what God wants us to do, and how He's leading. As this is next step for us, and we find the Spirit of God working among our friends as we pray to get the direction from God. So when other people hear our story, they do hear how how God has led in our lives. They do hear how he's directed us. We do hear how we came from this place to this place. And we get that counsel, that abundance of counselors who come alongside to affirm, to encourage in decisions that we are making. Because we're making hard decisions at times. Difficult decisions at times. And sometimes we're making those hard decisions we don't want people to know. Yet At the same time, that's when people need to know to bring in the wisdom of counselors and the leading of God as we listen to one another and as we pray together, as we make decisions. That somehow when we think of God working among his people, when we think of ourselves living in difficult times, that we know the decisions that we are making are important to get counsel and to pray. Let me give you a third word. It becomes important to wrestle with. And that word is idolatry. Turn to chapter 3 of Daniel. Daniel chapter 3. Here's what we read to start off with. Nebuchadnezzar still king. So Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold. The height which is 60 cubits. And its width is 6 cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. So it's 90 feet tall. It's 9 feet wide. This is a really huge, huge, huge statue and idol is what it's called. It's made of gold. Nebuchadnezzar, verse 2, Nebuchadnezzar sent, king sent word to the assembled, the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the province to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Then the satraps, prefects, and uh, governors, the counselors, and treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the province were assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up, and they stood before the image that he had set up. Then he heard loudly and proclaimed, To you the command is given, O peoples, nations, men of every language... That at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, psaltery, bagpipe. Didn't know they were Scottish. But bagpipes and all kinds of uh, music. You're all to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And so the image is set up 90 feet tall, 9 feet wide. So as they hear all those instruments, everybody says fall down and worship. And that is to take place. And then here's what takes place actually happens. So as it takes place, it's all set up. Verse 12. Certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these men, O king, have disregarded you and do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. So it continues. And Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to him and brought them before the king. Nebuchadnezzar responded to them and said, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods and worship the golden image I have set up? Now, if you are ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, to fall down and worship the image that I made very well. But if you will not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said, O king, King, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of the blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So the image is set up. Everything happens, everybody bows down except these three young men. Everybody's aware that they didn't worship the idol. Also an idolatry becomes an important thing in the life of every follower of Christ and for these men following Yahweh. There's a high cost to them. They're going to be thrown into a fiery furnace. We find the furnace is made nine times hotter than normal. King watches it happen. Hoping it doesn't hurt them, but anticipating it will kill them. And their willingness to go that far at that high cost of their life in order that they do not worship an idol identifies that we're wrestling with idolatry in our lives when it comes to following Christ. Idolatry is something that can happen to all of us. That somehow we have this opportunity to fall down and worship other things than Christ or the King of Kings and our Heavenly Father. That somehow we can worship other things and not follow Christ. And all of a sudden to pause to ask ourselves the question, in my consecrated life, are there idols that I find myself giving to as opposed to following Christ? An idolatry can show up in so many forms. It's where do I spend my time? When I look at all the time I spend on things. It's where do I spend my money on the things I purchase and have to have. When I start thinking of the idols that are in my life, what they could be of where I spend time and spend money. And all of a sudden it's like this is what I have to have. Is it the sense of all of a sudden you're in pursuit of prominence that you just want to be known? Are you looking for promotion at work that you're striving so hard for that? Are you going after financial wealth in such a way that you have to have more money than what you have? Is there a pursuit in your life that you find it is driving you for everything you want to do and it becomes an idol in your life that you have? Will you take your extra time outside of work and where do you spend it are there hobbies you have are there addictions you have are there things that you pursue that when somebody watches their perception is there's this idol that you have in your life and for us as followers of Christ to know that on a regular basis we're wrestling with this question of idolatry what is it that I'm truly pursuing with my life What is it that I'm really trying to accomplish? What is it that I give all my time to? What is it that I spend my money on? What is the idol that I have in my life? Because idolatry is one that comes forward that we have to wrestle with when it comes to having a consecrated life as a follower of Christ. Let me give you a fourth word. That's witness. Look chapter 4. situation arises here where the king comes again in Nebuchadnezzar. Here's what we read. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of all the peoples, nations, of men of every language that live on the earth, may your peace abound. It seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the most high God has done for me. How great are his signs? How mighty are his wonders? His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion is from generation to generation. He continues I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at my ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. I saw a dream. It made me fearful. And these fantasies lay in my bed, and visions in my mind kept alarming me. So he has this vision. Having this vision, he now is looking for an interpretation of the dream. No one's able to interpret the dream until Daniel comes along and gives an interpretation. And as he uh, gives the interpretation, we find it coming forth in verse 19. It introduces that Daniel, whose name is Belshazzar, was appalled for a while as his thoughts alarmed him. The king responded and said, Belshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. Belshazzar answered and said, My Lord, If only the dream applied to those who hate you, it's interpretation to your adversaries. But he identifies the dream is about him. When it comes to work its way out, we get down to verse 23, and we find out the dream comes to fruition. The dream has been that he's going to have a time where he's going to find himself for a year or so going out into the woods, and it's described this way, and this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the great which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? So he's boasting. While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared sovereignty has been removed from you. And you will be driven away from mankind And your dwelling place will be the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle. Seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the most high is the ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. So what happens is the king finds himself now out in the woods for 12 months. Finds himself scouring through the woods and everything. Like he's insane for over a year. That was the dream he had. That's actually what happened. It's what Daniel told him would take place. This is the same Nebuchadnezzar who saw the three men come through the fiery furnace. As he saw that, he found himself overwhelmed by the God that they believed in and actually makes declaration about this God. And now he has this vision interpreted by Daniel and it actually comes to to fruition. It happens. When all gets done, here's what takes place next for him. Look at uh, verses uh, 33 and following. Immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from mankind, began eating grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's uh, feathers and his hands like bird's claws. But at the end of that period, this is now his testimony. I, Nebuchadnezzar, raise my eyes towards heaven My reason returned to me. I bless the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of earth are accounted as nothing. But he does according to his will in the host of heaven. Drop down to verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of heaven. For all his works are true and his ways just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. The reason I would use the word witness here, it's because of the words, the witness, and testimony of these four consecrated followers of Yahweh. They told him about Yahweh, they told him about their faith, and as a result, all of a sudden you have Nebuchadnezzar making a statement of faith as well. And that somehow we think of a consecrated life. There's somehow a witness that we have as well. It's not just how we live. It's how we speak as well. That when we think of the difficult times we live in. Working with coworkers and Zooming and all that takes place. When we think of trying to connect with family and all. When we start thinking of people who do not know Christ. That we have a responsibility to be a witness not just by our life of how we live, but by our words that we speak. I want you to think about that. When's the last time you actually spoke of Christ, spoke of Jesus Christ to a neighbor? When's the last time you actually shared Christ with maybe somebody at work? When was it you took to a family member who doesn't know Christ And actually spoke your testimony of how you came to Christ. When's the last time you actually witnessed with your words about Christ? Sometimes I feel as though what we want to do is just be accepted by our neighbors. Just that they like us. Because if I speak, I might offend them. But somehow a consecrated life of following Jesus Christ that somehow we witness with our words. As we say here, we not just go, grow, and overcome. We go. We go. Why? To make disciples. There's words that we speak. We witness that we have that takes place when we're consecrated to Christ. Our final word is prayer. This comes in uh, chapter uh, six, where Daniel finds himself in a situation where they pass a law in the nation that you cannot pray to any god except the gods of the Babylonians. And Daniel's aware of that document, and it's finally signed in verse nine of chapter six. Therefore, King Darius signed the document, and that is the injunction, verse 10. Now, when Daniel knew that the document was signed, He entered his house, now in his roof chamber, and the windows opened towards Jerusalem so he could be seen by everyone. He continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement, found Daniel making petition supplication before his God. Then they approached and spoke to the king, and it told him, did you not sign that any man who makes petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days is the cast in the lion's den. And the king answered and said, The statement is true, according to the law, of the Medes and the Persians, which may not be revoked. And this is Darius the king, this is not Nebuchadnezzar. And as a result of this, Daniel is thrown into the lion's den. And once again, God saves him out of the lion's den, like he saved his friends out of the fiery furnace. But what it identifies is that a consecrated life is one of prayer. The name for Daniel was public prayer, that it could be seen by others. And just thinking about our prayer life of how we spend time in prayer. Or how often we get those emails, those Facebook posts and all where people say, uh, here's what's going on in my life, and we respond praying for you. And the question, are we really praying for them? Did you really pray for them? Or is it just words we pass on? I found for myself that I was doing that. And after a while, I realized I didn't pray for them. I just said I was going to pray for them. And I realize now I do not respond until I pray. And then I don't say, I'm praying. I said, I prayed for you. Because I actually prayed. But somehow, when it comes to prayer, the prayer is the life of a consecrated believer, one who follows Christ. And that somehow people could watch us, see us in some way that they know we pray. Some would gather with our friends that we pray. Some there's even public prayer that they may see. Maybe when you have meals together. When you go out with your family in public. Maybe it's at work. But somehow prayer becomes part of your life. It becomes the anticipation of a consecrated life is that we pray. That's why tonight we're having a prayer night. Why? Because that's what believers do. Not just in difficult times. That's the mark of a consecrated life to do that. So we start thinking of this consecrated life of these men. What well, we have to realize there's a high cost and a high commitment. And following Christ means there's a high cost, there's a high commitment. There's a cost to following Christ. It costs these men potentially their lives. There's a commitment in following Christ, and that we become aware of that. Turn to Romans 12 with me. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. As Paul writes, uh, Romans, he goes through the first uh, uh, four chapters and he lays out the foundation of salvation, the need for salvation and righteousness as with our sin. He identifies we're justified. And he gets us up through chapter 5, verses chapter 6, 7, and 8. He comes along and talks about how we wrestle with the Christian life. We wrestle with license, legalism. We live by the Spirit. Chapters 9, 10, 11, he talks about the role of Israel and what God's plan is for them. And then he comes to his application of the truth of justification by faith. And he comes to his therefore in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And this just brings to bear for us as followers of Christ that what we find in the Old Testament, we find true here as well. He says, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to what? Present your bodies, to dedicate your life, to consecrate yourself, a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, That you may prove what the will of God is, that is good and acceptable and perfect. He says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And it's been said that by some, the only problem with a living sacrifice on an altar is it keeps crawling off. You know, for us, we need to pause at times and realize, is there a place to rededicate our lives? And we're talking about consecration here. You've come to Christ. You're following Christ. But is there a place where you pause and stop and say, you know what, Lord? I, I, need, to, I need to reconsecrate my life. I-, I realize there's areas that I've taken back and taken control of. Or there's things I'm doing that I need to give back to you. Maybe you're defiling yourself in some way, and you realize, I I need to give that back. Maybe you're making decisions without including others. Maybe you're aware of some idolatry in your life. Maybe you see there's not the prayer that should be in your life. And somehow when you look and reflect on your own consecration of how you should live in difficult times, there's some recommitments that you need to make. A rededication of some kind. Well, we do this regularly with youth. Youth conferences are always built around this. You may recall in your own youth days. You go to the conference, they all run about the same way. Friday night starts all rah-rah-rah-rah. Saturday all works up to the Saturday night event where somehow there's a cross and you're putting nails in it or Post-it notes on something, recommitment to Christ, and then you celebrate on Sunday what you're going to do. But somehow as adults, we don't pause at times to reflect, to rethink, to even recommit. The question is, where are you in your walk with Christ? Where's your consecration? What have you taken back? What do you give back What do you need to rededicate? What is it that when people look at you their awareness that that is somebody being conformed to the image of Christ because you're consecrated to Christ and they can see it by your witness and your words by the fact that the stains are removed by the prayers that you pray by the decisions that you make By the idols, you don't worship. Consecration. A consecrated life. Is high commitment. High cost. But also requires a dedication to that. I'm going to close in prayer, but it's it's going to lead us into communion. Which is a time of recommitment, I think, of where you may be. So, as we go do that, we're going to prepare our hearts and we'll have some time of silence for you. But I'm just going to close for prayer for us in our preparation for that. So, Lord, as we look at your word here and that. That life you call us to as followers of Christ. That consecrated life. There's a way for your spirit to work in us right now, Lord. All convicting. All convicting. But for those who have set themselves apart and are following, just to encourage them that they are following you. But Lord, if we're wrestling with an area, if there's something we've taken back, Let's find a time now where we can give it to you for that.